Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. I am often amazed by just how many products in our human lives come from trees. Enjoying a piece of chocolate? Thanks, cacao tree. Driving your car down the road? Thanks, para rubber tree, for my tires. Sipping on a pumpkin spice latte way out of season? A shameless thank you to the cinnamon, nutmeg, clove, and coffee trees. But at the end of the day, if you ask someone what trees give us, an easy and immediate and still valid answer is just wood. And that simple contribution is why I've chosen to highlight today's topic tree, the balsa wood tree. Balsa wood is not special because of how common and universal it is in construction. It's much too lightweight for such purposes. In fact, in the realm of wood material, it is astonishingly lightweight, but still surprisingly strong given the former characteristic. Let's explore what has been accomplished with the help of a material both light and strong, as well as what discoveries have erroneously been made thanks to its buoyancy. the balsa wood tree, one would have to traverse the dense jungles of Central and South America. This is a region where, instead of seasons being defined by being hot or cold, they shift based on dry and wet periods. This has led the balsa wood tree to fall under a unique classification of being dry season deciduous. So these trees still turn colors and end up going into dormancy at some point between December and April but more because it's dry rather than cold, and usually the tree isn't totally leafless for very long. These leaves are pretty fascinating. They average in length of around a foot, but I've seen pictures of some umbrella-shade-sized leaves. Their shape consists of a rounded base that extends in a more or less triangular fashion, coming to a point at the far end but they are also considered to be weakly lobed, which means that on either side of that rounded triangle, they form these little nubbins that kind of look like thumbs. Balsa flowers are a creamy white and tend to be bell-shaped with a yellow sproingy protrusion sticking out from its middle. Look, I know there's way more official and technical ways to describe flowers to you, but I'm willing to admit that reproductive anatomy was always my weakest area in my college botany courses. And while I know some of you would enjoy me getting into the organization of its stamen and what its nectar production looks like, I feel like many of you are on the same page as me where creamy white petals and a yellow sproingy protrusion just does the trick. What is really cool about these flowers is that they get pollinated by a bunch of different animals. I literally just said I wasn't going to mention this, but apparently balsa flowers nectar production is pretty top tier. One study recorded 22 different vertebrate species feeding on the nectar alongside numerous insect species and also documented at least two different predatory species, a mantis and a boa constrictor, just hanging out on the tree waiting to gobble up all the different critters waiting in line at this apparent buffet, both during the day and over the night. Primarily, it's the insects as well as some monkey species that help pollinate the balsa tree during the day, and the kinkajou and the olingo, which are nocturnal mammals, that pollinate it overnight. 
If you haven't heard of the Kinkajou and the Olingo, they're in the same animal family as raccoons, and they basically look like if a monkey and a possum had a baby. When these balsa flowers are successfully pollinated, the tree can produce fruits, which in this case are capsules that release a seemingly endless amount of cottony stuffing called kapok. This name is taken from the related kapok tree, which also produces a mountain of cottony seeds. Quick tangent, kapok trees are huge, both in regards to height as well as in cultural significance for various peoples in the Caribbean and Central America. It could very easily end up as its own future episode topic. Both the kapok and our balsa tree are members of the plant family Malvaceae, commonly known as the mallow family. Malvaceae is a large family that has seen a lot of shakeup in recent decades as to what plant groups get to be in or not, with the general trend being towards lumping in additional groups. Studies published as recently as 2021 are still trying to organize this dang group. Alongside the balsa and the kapok are some economically important plants like cacao, where we get chocolate, as well as okra, cotton, and durian. You know, that big, spiky, stinky fruit. This family is also home to diverse and fascinating trees like the baobab and the linden, which I cover in episodes 13 and 26, respectively. Really strange to see those two trees in the same family, if we're being totally honest. All this diversity has certainly led to some strong subfamily divisions, and our balsa wood tree is specifically lumped in the same subfamily where we find the kapok and the baobab trees. These are its closest significant relatives. This tree is the only member of its genus, its species known scientifically as Acroma pyramidale. This Latin name, ignoring the fact that the words are Greek in origin, refers more to the tree's external coloring and the triangular shape of the base of its trunk. But the common names for this tree, balsa, and in some countries, boya, refer to what the tree is made of. Balsa is the Spanish word for raft, and boya is the word for buoy, coming from the same root that gives us the term buoyancy. Clearly, this tree is significant for how well its wood floats, and this trait comes from how this wood is incredibly lightweight. Every different tree species' wood is quantifiably different regarding how light or heavy it is. This is related to the metric that also determines what is considered a softwood or hardwood species. You've likely heard of the Mohs scale of hardness when it comes to how hard rocks are, with talc being super soft and diamond being super hard. There is a similar scale for the hardness of wood that you may not have heard of, called the Jenka scale. The Jenka rating scale is organized and determined based on a consistent test. How much force is required to push a steel ball of a certain size half of its depth into a chunk of wood? The resulting score is the number of pounds force required to accomplish this. The hardest of woods can require upwards of 4,000 pounds of force, some examples being Brazilian walnut ranking around 3680 and African blackwood at 3670. If you've heard wood referred to as hardwood or softwood, that distinction usually refers to the general disparity in wood hardness between conifers and deciduous broadleaf trees. And in general, with some exceptions, 
deciduous broadleaf trees rate at least in the upper hundreds, with most falling between 1 and 2,000 pounds force. Conifers, on the other hand, like pines and firs, have Jenka ratings more commonly in the low to mid hundreds. Balsa wood is one of the softest woods there is, requiring only 100 pounds of force to push a little steel ball half its diameter into the wood. The reason this wood is so soft has to do with how absurdly fast these trees grow. Balsa wood trees are capable of growing up to 100 feet or 30 meters tall in just 15 years. Granted, they don't live very long, typically just to around 35 years. These trees very much embody that live fast, die young mentality. Typically, when these are grown in an agricultural setting, they're harvested after just 6 to 10 years of growth, which is plenty of time to get a profitable amount of wood. That wood, with such fast growth, is incredibly porous. Doesn't take long to grow wood if half your wood is just air, you know? This porous nature is what makes the wood so ridiculously light and soft, again because it's half air. But this does not mean that balsa wood is weak and fragile. The structure of this wood not only gives it terrific buoyancy, but also a surprising amount of strength for its given weight. And these two properties combined have led to the balsa's involvement in some incredibly convoluted adventures and inventions. Throughout the 15 and 1600s, Europeans were sailing across every body of water they could find and filling in the world map with massive landmasses previously unknown to their cultures. These landmasses were, of course, populated with diverse peoples who had been living in these quote-unquote newly discovered continents for thousands and thousands of years. And one question that held European curiosity was, how did they get here? This question was especially raised in the case of the Polynesian islands. So many tiny pieces of land separated by vast stretches of ocean, how on earth do so many of them have humans already living there? The hubris of European conquest greatly helped to stoke this conundrum. After all, they were the cutting edge of maritime and navigational technology, and they were only just now finding these places. How were their people people that they considered subhuman, that figured this all out so long before them. One leading theory even suggested that Polynesian islanders were, in fact, close genetic relatives to Europeans that somehow got separated, and that explains how they were smart enough to build strong ships and successfully navigate long distances of uncharted water. Because there's no way these indigenous peoples that Europeans had been enslaving and eradicating were also human beings equally capable of intelligence. Right? We may look back and recognize that ignorance now. But keep in mind that the uncertainty of how early Polynesians populated the Pacific Islands continued into the 1900s. By 1947, the leading theory had been a vague acknowledgement that Polynesian seafaring was some lost craft that may never be fully understood. 
when a Norwegian man by the name of Thor Heyerdahl decided that he had it all figured out. He asked people if they had heard of the legend of Chief Kontiki and his balsa wood raft. In 1527, Spanish explorers encountered Inca communities in what is now called Peru and noted that there were disparities in the skin tones of these indigenous peoples. While most had darker skin, some had lighter skin and reddish hair. When asked about this by the Spanish, the Incas explained that those with lighter skin are descended from the people who preceded the Incas in this region. The Incas had warred with their predecessors and, in the face of defeat, their chief, by the name of Contiki, chose to flee by means of the ocean to the west on a raft made of balsa wood. Thor Heyerdahl was fascinated by this story because he had spent some time on an island in what is now French Polynesia and heard stories about how the native islanders were all descended from the supposed first man, known variably across the Pacific Ocean as Ki'i, Ti'i, or Tiki. Heyerdahl noted this familiar name and combined it with similarities in indigenous architecture and art and the observation of major ocean currents and prevailing winds flowing from east to west rather than west to east. His theory, then, was that the pre-Inca chief Contiki fled South America on his balsa wood raft and floated along those east to west currents until he reached the Polynesian islands, and thus began the population of the Pacific. His theory rejected any notion that Polynesians could have come from Asia or Africa, but it did revisit the idea that they must have been some European descendant due to the idea that Contiki reportedly had lighter skin and reddish hair. The scientific community responded with a big fat no and called him dumb. The idea of a balsa wood raft itself was a detail that raised issue with many other experts, claiming that the porous nature of the wood would cause it to be too easily waterlogged and its flimsiness would not have survived the treacherous ocean. This backlash upset Heyerdahl, who stood his ground. One anthropologist decidedly said, Okay, buddy, if you feel so strong about this, then how about you go build a balsa raft and make the journey yourself? And Heyerdahl said, Oh, that's a great idea. So the Norwegian scientist got himself a crew, including a thermodynamics engineer, a sailor, two radio experts Thor had met during World War II, and a Spanish-speaking anthropologist, seemingly the only anthropologist who actually liked his theory. These six men traveled to the Andes, cut down some balsa trees, and latched a series of 45-foot logs together to form an incredibly rudimentary raft outfitted with food, a stove, and a radio. The so-named Contiki Expedition lasted over three months and was defined by plentiful, fascinating, and delicious marine life, beautiful aquatic scenery, and ultimately, success. After 101 days of their balsa raft not becoming waterlogged or destroyed, the crew of the Contiki washed up on a coral reef by the Raroya Atoll in Polynesia. Heyerdahl considered this journey an overwhelming victory in defense of his theory that the Pacific Islands were originally populated by South Americans, and many experts admittedly expressed shock in his survival. Some just applauded him, while others actively amended their own theories on seafaring migration. Heyerdahl wrote a book about this adventure which has been translated into 70 languages and made into an award-winning documentary. 
In the Norwegian capital city of Oslo, there's a Kontiki museum with the original balsa raft on display. And my favorite part about this whole thrilling aquatic expedition is that Thor Heyerdahl is still absolutely wrong and his really fun time with his five friends proved nothing. Modern anthropological research, including studies on genetics, archaeology, language, and ethnobotany, all clearly point to the Pacific Islands being populated by seafaring people traveling west to east from Asia and Australia, not east from South America. And in 1976, it was definitively proven that those first Polynesians were absolutely just really clever people. When the Polynesian Voyaging Society used watercraft constructed in traditional methods and navigated by traditional means, with the help of the famed navigator Mao Piailug to sail from Hawaii to Tahiti. This was a journey that by no means relied on prevailing sea currents or winds to help them along, yet still resulted in a resounding success. What Heyerdahl's expedition did display, though, was that balsa wood was not as weak and flimsy as those scientists thought it was. Two weeks into the voyage, Thor noted specifically in his journal how effective this simple log raft was at surviving the ocean. And it is as a raft that the balsa still finds relevance today. The first modern surfboard was designed with a balsa wood core that was subsequently encased in fiberglass and epoxy resin. And while boards have been made using synthetic materials more and more since then, balsa wood is still the most common material used for the shaping and design of surfboards as of 2018. Another big use for balsa wood is as the material for constructing model crafts. I'm talking small-scale cars, bridges, and planes. Balsa's high strength-to-weight ratio makes it an incredible material to run scale tests for vehicles and infrastructure and understand a design's strengths and weaknesses without having to build the whole thing itself. Model cars are actually how I found out about balsa wood when I was younger. I got really into woodworking in high school, and I remember asking what kind of wood those race cars were made of that the little rascals drove. It was balsa wood. Ultimately, this material is primarily just used at this small scale because despite its incredible strength considering its lightness, its actual strength does not compare to denser woods like yellow pines or ash. This, of course, did not stop the British from using balsa to build a full-size airplane during World War II. At this point in history, wood had almost entirely been replaced in the world of aviation by lightweight, strong metals. Except for a famous plane known as the Spruce Goose, which was actually made of birch, and the de Havilland Mosquito, made from a combination of birch, ash, spruce, Douglas fir, and balsa wood. The British Royal Air Ministry absolutely hated the idea of the Mosquito and constantly resisted its construction in favor of the clearly more effective metal designs. The Mosquito design was that of a lightweight bomber. The strength of the materials used allowed it to carry significant loads of cargo, and the lightweight of the wood made it faster than a normal bomber, allowing for effective long-range missions and precise maneuvers that other metal bombers could not pull off. At the same time, it was made of wood and significantly weaker than those metal bombers. Mosquito pilots recognized that they needed to be ready to bail out at a moment's notice if they started taking fire. 
Despite this, the Smithsonian Institute claims that there has never been a more successful combat-proven warplane made of wood. In the modern day, 95% of balsa wood production comes from the country of Ecuador, where the tree is native. And this tree continues to have a significant impact on the culture of Ecuadorians. Historically, thanks to the thinness of its bark and the softness of its wood, this tree was used as a carving surface. It's a practice that was used both to create art, as well as a form of written communication. Today, balsa wood proves to be an economic boon for the country, as production is in high demand for use as wind turbine blades in Europe and China. Unfortunately, balsa wood production does come with its fair share of baggage. There is a sort of Ecuadorian wood mafia that practices heavy, illegal, and unsustainable logging of balsa trees. I say unsustainable because instead of replanting the forests that are logged, most areas are converted into plantations for growing drugs and ultimately replace the previously vibrant ecosystem that balsa trees were a part of. And considering that it's a veritable crime organization, much of this work is performed by forced child labor, which absolutely sucks and stands as a dark stain against the otherwise incredible history associated with these trees. It's important to be aware of the unfortunate things that humans are doing in this otherwise beautiful world of ours, but there is still so much positivity to be associated with the balsa wood tree. I personally associate the idea of this tree with the idea of discovery and learning. Though Thor Heyerdahl's ideas ultimately lacked credibility, the balsa tree served as a tangible connection to explore the experiences of the humans who came before him. Anytime balsa wood is used to make a scale model of some grand new inventive design, it helps us to learn more and explore new ideas. Just as people indigenous to South America used the carvable surface of the balsa tree to communicate information, the tree continues to serve as a canvas on which the future of our civilizations is written. If you've been interested in my Patreon and just haven't had a chance to commit, I've got great news for you. Patreon has added a 7-day free trial feature, which I have included on my page. I invite you to try it out and check out my tree walk video series, full-length interviews, and get some updates on what I have planned for the rest of the summer at no cost to you. Visit patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees to learn more. I've been thinking more about these simple needs that trees fulfill. With summer season now in full swing, what more do we need from a tree than some cool shade that protects us from the sun? The tree I'm covering in two weeks is best known throughout history for this single purpose. It's known throughout much of the world as the plane tree, but is more commonly recognized in the United States as the sycamore. On June 27th, I'll be shedding some light on why this tree specifically is so loved for its ability to shade, as well as how the sycamore influenced German camouflage design and how it teaches us that our most common understanding of evolution may be totally wrong. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at Boomerang Brit on Instagram. 
My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at Tree Podcast. You can support me directly by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees or donate directly to a sustainable organization like the ones found on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. Hug.